When we uh, tallied up the investments our, our members have underway so far in EV charging infrastructure primarily, but other programs, customer programs to support EVs, it's more than $3.4 billion across the country. So that's underway. Now, of course, the bipartisan infrastructure law is bringing billions more to the table, but we do see an opportunity to leverage those funds, right? Um, so we don't see the federal funds displacing what our members are doing, but really adding on to it so we can all go further. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Welcome back to the second episode of our three-part series highlighting conversations from EEI 2022, our annual thought leadership forum that was held in Orlando, Florida in June. The first part featured a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation between U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and EEI Chair Warner Baxter, Executive Chairman of Ameren Corporation. Today, you will hear more highlights from the conference and insightful interviews with EEI 2022 panelists and keynote speakers. EEI 2022 kicked off at The Hub, where technology and innovation was showcased through clean energy and tech demonstrations and discussions. Dr. Michael Weber, Chief Technology Officer at Energy Impact Partners and the Josie Centennial Professor in Energy Resources at the University of Texas at Austin, started the day by exploring clean energy and decarbonization challenges and opportunities. He joined Electric Perspectives after his presentation to discuss which clean energy technologies have the most potential, the path to a reduced carbon future, and more. So we're joined now by Dr. Michael Weber, the Chief Technology Officer at Energy Impact Partners and the Josie Centennial Professor in Energy Resources at the University of Texas at Austin. He opened up EEI 2022 today talking about clean energy and some of the decarbonization challenges, as well as the opportunities that we have here in front of us. So thank you so much for making a little bit of time to join us here for the podcast. Thanks for having me for the conversation. It's good to speak with you. So during your remarks, one of the themes toward the end there was really don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important for investors and companies and policymakers to be focusing on, as you said, deploying as fast as possible to see what works? One of the things I try to teach my students and anyone who will listen is that perfection is really maybe a desirable goal in some respects, but really is an inhibitor for progress. We need to get going. And if we wait for the perfect device or the perfect policy or the perfect market conditions or the perfect attitude, it might not ever happen. We need to get going. And that's because I think that the climate crisis and the energy crisis and all the things we're dealing with are both urgent and important. They're important, so we need to solve them, but they're urgent. We need to get started. There's many challenges that, that companies and policymakers are facing, but you think risk aversion might be a piece of that? Risk aversion, there's sort of complicated regulatory overlays of who's in charge. Is it the city, the region, the state, the multi-county area, or the federal government, or multinational organizations? So we have these projects that will span multiple states because the energy infrastructure is large, and you don't want one township that can stop the whole thing. You also don't want these other big projects to trample all over these small towns. So we have a lot of different stakeholders at different scales we have to keep in mind, and that really slows it down. Can you tell us a little bit about Energy Impact Partners, which is the key sponsor here for the Hub at EI 2022, and what the companies are doing working with EI's member companies to try to really drive this innovation? Energy Impact Partners is an investment entity focused on the energy transition opportunity and deploying capital to get good ideas to market. But we do it differently than Energy Cleantech 1.0. Energy Cleantech 1.0 
didn't really understand energy and excluded the energy incumbents and did not work. And we understand energy and we include the energy incumbents. And that's important because those incumbents are the ones who know how to deploy at scale over decades and with reliability in mind. So it's just kind of the missing piece historically. So we're going at it again. Clean tech has a lot of innovation, a lot of opportunity, but we need to really leverage the expertise, the infrastructure, the know-how in the mindset of what we already have. Electric companies are incorporating more clean energy technology into their operations as our industry works to reduce emissions in our sector, but also with an eye toward helping other sectors of the economy reduce their emissions. What are some of the technology or technologies really that you think have the most potential right now? There's a lot of old school technologies that are very important still. I'm thinking like wires and poles, like transmission lines, either new ways to build them more cheaply or more reliably or underground them or make them high voltage DC lines or something like that. So old school technologies are still really critical to the way we run our energy system, but also the rise of data to manage the system more precisely or with more fine control storage, whether it's batteries or thermal storage or phase change materials or pumped hydroelectric or compressed air energy storage, whatever it is, storage is really a critical enabler to run the energy system in a more nimble way with resilience and decarbonization of mine. And then a lot of the decarbonization solutions like wind and solar are already cheaper. And some of the other ones we want, maybe geothermal or small modular reactors for nuclear, are not cheaper yet. That's where we need some more innovation and policies to drive down those costs. Looking at the importance of having generation that not only is clean and reliable, but really can run 24-7 with some flexibility. I know we're going to have some sessions later on here at EI22 looking at the potential role of hydrogen, and I think there's been some really interesting uh, announcements of, of pilot projects and other ventures that AI member companies are looking for. What do you think might be the future role of hydrogen in the energy mix, and how would that work with traditional fuels and infrastructure? I think you really nailed it. We need something that's dispatchable in the system to keep the demand and supply balance. And historically, for the last 100 plus years, that has been a control knob on supply to ramp supply up and down. But we could also ramp demand up and down, which could be through storage or flexible industrial loads like water treatment or data centers we can turn off. So we need flexibly controlled dispatchable load and flexibly controlled dispatchable supply. And we need more of those supplies. And a lot of them, because they're dictated by the weather, are not dispatchable. That includes hydro, wind, and solar. Geothermal might be, hydro in some cases is, nuclear or rotating machines with hydrogen, hydrogen blends look really good. So I think that hydrogen does have a big opportunity, and that hydrogen might be made from electricity, by the way. And that hydrogen might be made from natural gas, but with carbon capture. So we don't know how it be made, but there are a lot of opportunities. And we at EIP have invested in electric hydrogen in some of these startups because we think burning fuels and rotating machines have a place for grid reliability. And maybe a final question here, but certainly an important one. Uh, as we're discussing here at EI 2022, EI's member companies have made a lot of forward-looking commitments and really outline the plans and paths that they see to reduce their emissions for the electric power sector. I think right now we have about 50 electric companies that have made these forward-looking commitments, more than three dozen of which actually are looking for a net zero equivalent by 2050 or sooner. I know some of uh, the companies that you all are working in investing are looking at some of the other sectors, some of the major emitting sectors. So can you talk about some of those industrial applications? Yeah, and we think of the electric sector as an ally for everyone's decarbonization goals because the electric sector, the power sector itself can decarbonize and is decarbonizing more quickly than the other sectors, but can help decarbonize the other sectors who are having trouble decarbonizing. Transportation is front of mind. If we electrify vehicles, that will be better. 
but we could also electrify industrial heat. We could electrify some chemical processes that use heat or steam right now that could be electrochemical processes. We do that for aluminum already. We use electricity to smelt the aluminum to get the aluminum out of the bauxite that we get from the ores. We could do that also for other distillation or other techniques. So we could do a lot of electrification of agriculture, uh, chemicals, fabrication, you name it. And as we electrify those sectors, then the power sector is an ally for those other sectors' decarbonization goals, and they don't know how to do it other than, say, through carbon capture. So you become another tool in the toolbox if we really couple all the sectors together that way. So we saw a major infrastructure bill pass in the fall, the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So what you're saying is that there's a path forward to make substantial investments in infrastructure where you're thinking steel, concrete, those sort of things. That can we can continue on that path while reducing emissions at the same time. Absolutely. I, I think we you mentioned steel and cement. There's also glass furnaces. There's also aviation, long-haul marine shipping, long-haul heavy-duty trucking, off-road heavy-duty mining equipment. There's a lot of things that we haven't electrified very easily yet, but we can electrify in the future or use electricity to make the fuels to run them. And I think there is a pathway forward, absolutely. And the power sector which a decade ago was taking on headlines like the end of the utility sector or the utility death spiral, now looks like the winner in this. Like It's going to be a gross sector because we need so many electrons. Thank you so much for joining us today to chat, but really for opening up EEI 2022 in the hub to help frame out really the challenges and opportunities we have in front of us and just really how excited we all are to help deliver the clean energy future that our customers want. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg delivered a virtual message to EEI 2022 attendees touting electric transportation investments and policies. Here is a clip from his remarks. Hello, I'm Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and I want to thank the Edison Electric Institute and President Kuhn in particular for inviting me to share a few words at EEI 2022. I also want to thank everyone here today for your tireless commitment to deliver a clean energy future through electric transportation. When I spoke to this group last year, we talked about the urgent need for a historic investment in clean transportation infrastructure. Today, that investment is underway, thanks in no small part to your voices and your partnership. President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law is set to transform our transportation systems, help the U.S. win the EV market, and significantly reduce the outsized carbon footprint of the transportation sector. And we at the DOT aren't wasting any time getting to work. Earlier this year, we announced the largest investment in EV infrastructure in our country's history, with nearly $5 billion for states to begin building out a nationwide network of EV chargers, plus another $2.5 billion in competitive grants coming out later this year, with a focus on the kinds of places that might otherwise get overlooked by private sector EV investments in communities. Earlier this month, we announced a much-anticipated new proposed rule to make sure the EV charging network is user-friendly, accessible, and interoperable. And to coordinate our efforts across the federal government, we launched a joint office of energy and transportation with our colleagues at the Department of Energy. But of course, government is only part of the equation. and We need industry leaders to do their part too. That's why I'm so grateful for the work so many of you are already doing including through EEI's National Electric Highway Coalition, whose members are investing so much time and so many resources toward deploying charging infrastructure and accelerating the transition to electric transportation. EEI has also closely worked with our new joint office and will continue to count on your expertise and partnership 
as we work to bring this ambitious plan to life. We need you to help states, local governments, tribes, and charging companies expand the reach of electric vehicles and make this a convenient, reliable, and affordable choice for all Americans. The EV era is coming. That much is now beyond question. Consumers, the markets, the countries around the world are all heading in that direction. But major questions do remain, like whether that shift will happen quickly enough to make a meaningful difference in the climate crisis, whether America will lead the way, and whether our consumers and companies will be able to equitably reap the benefits. We're working hard to make sure the answer to those questions is yes. And with your commitment, I know that we can succeed. Thank you again for all that you're doing to usher in a cleaner, brighter, safer future for the American people. And I hope you enjoy the rest of this event. One of the biggest hits of EEI 2022 was the EV Alley, a collection of electric vehicles ranging from an electric bucket truck that was just delivered to Excel Energy to an electric Harley-Davidson and various other heavy-duty and personal electric vehicles. Kellen Schefter, EEI's Senior Director of Electric Transportation, made some time to talk to us about EV Alley and EEI's new EV forecast. Our next guest that we're, we're happy to have back on the podcast is Kellen Schefter. He is EEI's Senior Director for Electric Transportation. He's joining us here in the hub at EEI 2022. And really, there's been a lot of electric transportation talk here. We have the EV alley outside. I'm going to ask you about that in a couple minutes, as well as some policy discussions that we've seen from the breakouts and main stage. And also your team released new forecasts for how many cars we're going to, or how many EVs we're going to see on the road mm -hmm. in 2030, as well as the infrastructure we're going to need to support those. So I'm going to throw a lot at you, but sure. let's start out with the the cars we have out out front in EV Alley. Yeah, we're really excited. I was telling someone else at the conference, you know, a couple of years ago, last time we met in person at EEI annual meeting, uh, those vehicles were not available, at least not the ones we had here this time. So we have a class eight truck, a semi truck that moves trailers. Uh, we have a pickup truck, which has been the holy grail of the EV market for so long. We have a very high end luxury sedan that can go more than 500 miles in a single charge. Uh, we have an all-electric bucket truck, which is great for our members who do uh, electric uh, service line upgrades. Um, so exciting to see all these vehicles out there. We also had a delivery van, electric delivery van, which can do last mile delivery. And, of course, the Harley-Davidson uh, all-electric uh, live wire. Really excited to see all these out there. So it really shows the spectrum, I think, of what the EV models can cover today and uh, how real this is really getting for, for this uh, space. And do you think, or have you seen people be a little bit surprised that you actually have such a variety of task-specific vehicles that are actually in production? Yeah, I mean, we talked about, you know, fleet electrification. You mentioned that topic and a big theme of the conference. You know, these are trucks that have to work to do a job, right? Deliver packages or move a trailer, move freight, um, you know, help restore power and outages for electric companies. So these are very serious service vehicles, but we're seeing product that can do those jobs, but also eliminate tailpipe emissions, right? By displacing petroleum with battery power, you know, powered by the energy grid. So, uh, like I said, it's becoming very real. And I think having the product here so you can touch it and feel it uh, is really driving home the point that this this is getting serious for us and getting sure. very exciting too. And tell us a little bit about the, the new forecast that your team has been doing and kind of what goes into the projections and then where, where you see us going. Sure. So we last published a forecast for EV sales through 2030 uh, back in 2018. Um, so here we are you know, a few years later and we updated it. 
Um, and it turns out the forecast, we had to revise upwards by about 40%, right? So now in 2030, instead of 18.7 million EVs on the road, as we projected a few years ago, now we're looking at more than 26 million EVs on the road in 2030. So I think that's just a result of, of the inputs into the forecast, right? We rely on independent analyses. We had four of them this time that we looked at. They're all taking into account more aggressive automaker targets, more aggressive policy in this space, um, and, and higher consumer demand as well. So I think we're finally seeing those inputs really result in this projection that's that's just constantly going upward as, as we revise these, uh, these studies. And for just some of the sessions, I know here in the Hub, we had a whole afternoon session talking about electric transportation just some just some quick highlights of the themes or the technologies that people were most excited about. Yeah, this this hub session was fun. You know, we tried to fit a lot into a short period of time, um, cover a lot of ground. We started with Daimler Truck North America. They're the ones here with the Class 8 uh, semi-truck. So they talked about the vision for electrifying freight movement, but also how important it is that we, the electric industry, know where these vehicles are going to be deployed because these trucks tend to take a lot of power and we need time to make sure we upgrade the system to support those needs. So we started with that. We talked about the National Electric Highway Coalition, which of course we're really excited. Um, and then we ended with some technology and partners that are working with our members. So I, I know we've talked about the National Electric Highway Coalition on previous episodes, but for folks who maybe haven't heard that, uh, can you go into a little more detail of what that is and what you're in sure. for? Sure. Yeah. So it's it's a coalition of more than 60 electric companies at this point, all committed to a common goal of deploying EV fast charging on travel corridors and really filling in the gaps to give driver confidence. Um, we're working with these members to help identify those gaps in, in the in the network working on good consumer um, outcomes, right? The, the customer experience outcomes that we know drivers need. Um, and now with the increased federal funding coming, we have this opportunity as the coalition to help support the states in the large influx of federal funds they're gonna have to deploy. And our goal there is to help support the states in their plans and leverage the activities that our members already have underway. So how much have our member companies gotten approval to invest so far and are these funds uh, complementary to the, the funding that EIT our members championed in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act? When we uh, tallied up the investments our, our members have underway so far in EV charging infrastructure primarily, but other programs, customer programs to support EVs, it's more than $3.4 billion across the country. So that's underway. Now, of course, the bipartisan infrastructure law is bringing billions more to the table, but we do see an opportunity to leverage those funds, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we don't see the federal funds displacing what our members are doing, but really adding on to it so we can all go further. So talk a little bit about how electric companies being regulated and how they work to serve customers across their territory are, are thinking about these investments. Like, do you have, are all these investments happening in cities or are any of these funds actually going to um, lower income or rural communities where not everyone's driving a Tesla, but there's certainly a lot of benefits to electric transportation, especially air quality, as you said. It's a great point, and it's one of the key things that I think the coalition is focused on is that, as you mentioned, regulated entities, our, our member electric companies, have an obligation to serve their customers, right? And if they're seeing uh, sections or regions in their service territories where there isn't private investment coming in to deploy EV charging, that in particular is a place where our members want to be sure that they can use whatever structure they have at their at their disposal to help deploy the infrastructure needed to support EV drivers, right? So it's not just about serving, like you said, uh, where we know the deployment is today, but where it's going to be and filling in those gaps to ensure everyone can benefit from the technology. And actually, you, you mentioned, you know, I, or we, we talked about earlier, the th more than $3.4 billion approved across the country 
for our members to invest in EV charging, a significant uh, allocation within that, almost a billion dollars, is allocated to underserved communities, disadvantaged communities, to ensure that they're not being left behind in this transition. And two more quick questions before we wrap here, because I know you have a lot of member companies and a lot of <laughs> folks here who want to go see the electric vehicles we have on display. But I think when electric vehicles started coming out, you saw really high-end models, really expensive models. But mm -hmm. how do you know how many consumer-facing electric vehicles are being offered to customers today? Maybe how many are projected? And really, aren't we seeing them at every price point? Yeah, I think that's one of the exciting indicators in the market that it really is starting to reach everyone. You know, today with something about you know, on the order of 50 or so EV models, I think EPRI had a projection shown just in a few years, it'll be more than 130. So we're seeing that really increase. And to your point, in segments that are closer to the heart of the car buying public, right? So, you know, this market started out with sort of smaller sedans, compact vehicles. Now we're seeing pickup trucks, we're seeing SUVs, and we are seeing uh, the price, you know, get to a point where it's more accessible, right? We're seeing more of these vehicles in the heart of that car buying market in the 30 to 40K range where the vast majority of, of vehicle transactions are taking place. So we're seeing that expand, and I think that that greater model availability would just mean that this market will continue to accelerate. So it sounds like it's all the more important for the National Electric Highway Coalition to make sure they're electrifying these major travel corridors, because I, I'm sure there's stats about most people are only driving a few miles for the most part to and from work. and that that's where you really realize the cost savings of having an electric vehicle. Exactly. But you still need to be able to go visit grandma or drive <laughs> drive to the beach for that family vacation. Uh, so what's the timeline for the NEHC? I mean, it sounds like they're they're really looking to move pretty fast. Yeah, when we started this coalition, you know, we set a goal of of ensuring that each of the members is supporting EV charging across their ter service territory by the end of 2023. Oh, wow. Now, it's very aggressive, but I think we're able to say that because so many of our members have projects, programs underway. When we asked them, you know, how many DC fast charging ports are, are the members of the coalition plan to support, uh, it came out to be about 4,500, right? So that's a pretty critical piece of this growing network. And as you said, as we get more EVs on the road, it's a moving target, right? The infrastructure that's built today can support what we have on the road today. But as we talked about earlier, that's going to increase by about a factor of 10 over, the, over by the end of the decade. Um, so that's a, a really critical function, I think, for the coalition to step in, provide that foundational investment, and then really spur investment for the rest of that, that piece that's needed. Well, Thank you so much for making some time here and really for all the great electric transportation programming here at EI 2022. I know there's a lot of work that you and your team put into making those happen and to getting all the electric vehicles here on display. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's been an exciting couple of days. Yeah, it's a lot of work, but we're really happy to do it. So thanks, Brian. Staying on the topic of electrification, we spoke to Adrian Rouse, Deloitte's EV Strategy and Planning Specialist Lead, and Jim Thompson, Deloitte's Vice Chair and U.S. Power Utilities and Renewables Leader, after Adrian participated on a panel titled Delivering on the Promise of Fleet Electrification. Our next guests are joining us after the panel Delivering on the Promise of Fleet Electrification. We're happy to be joined by Jim Thompson, Vice Chair of U.S. Power Utilities and Renewables at Deloitte, and then Adrian Rouse, Specialist Leader of EV Strategy and Planning at Deloitte. We'll start out with you, Jim. Thanks, thanks for Brian. joining us. No, th thanks for having us. Can you talk a little bit about how Deloitte is working with electric companies here in the U.S. and really what that 
partnership looks like as we look to deliver a resilient clean energy future to customers. Absolutely. And I'll say, I'll say first, just being at an event like this again and EEI bringing our industry together the way that, that y'all have is just amazing. After two and a half interesting years, the fact that we're in force, in mass here with so many of the leaders in the industry, as well as solution providers, as well as EEIs and organizations, it's just been an incredible, incredible couple of days and it's just been a great event. Um, I, I do think our, you know, we've seen in the last, probably the last five years, such a dramatic uptick in the focus on the, whether you call it the energy transition or the future of energy or the decarbonization journey and now ESG and, you know, all those other terms coming together. And the momentum now is stunning. It's stunning to see electric companies embracing and needing to embrace to not only react to regulatory changes and, and requests from regulators, but from federal government, other parts of state government, shareholders, stakeholders, employees, customers, all starting to really come together with this holistic vision for the future. So I think, um, you know, we've seen EEIs and organizations sponsoring and coming together on putting dates out there and looking at 80% by 2035 for decarbonization or being net carbon neutral. I think utilities now, now that we have targets, be it 2035, 2040, 2050, what have you, now that we have those targets, this is, this is where it gets real. And I think right now we have more than 50 EI member companies who have made forward-looking climate commitments, yep. whether it's a net zero equivalent, they, they vary a little bit. And more than four dozen of those are actually looking to be net zero in some degree. Right. So like you said, there's definitely some markers in the ground. And one thing we try to do here at EEI is to convene and make sure we're learning from each Absolutely. other. And I imagine you and your team also, as you're, you're helping companies, is making sure you're really learning from, from maybe the early movers so you can help really just accelerate the, the experience for everyone. Right, and I think that's the, that's the nature of this industry. And that's why it's such a blast to work. And I worked in the power space about 25 years, and there aren't many other industries where they truly collaborate and work together. Right? Even for things like mutual assistance, right? In times of need, it's rally the troops, bring everyone together, support folks and customers when, when they need to be supported, but then also get together through EEI or some of the other organizations like EPRI and, and jointly figure out how best to get solutions out there and plan for the future in a way so everybody can move forward. So it's an incredibly exciting time. And um, you know, at, at Deloitte, we're just happy to be a part of that, whether it's on the audit side, the tax side, the consulting side, advisory side, we just love being part of the equation and partnering strongly with EEI and our, our electric clients. Thank you so much for being here, for, for your sponsorship of helping us put this meeting together, and really just for the work that you're doing every day to help EI's member companies, the, the ones that you're partnering with, deliver a resilient clean energy future for their customers. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now we're going to turn over to Adrian Rouse. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, panel discussion from earlier, delivering on the promise of fleet electrification. I know we're talking a lot about how EEI's member companies can help corporate customers and the customers that you see out there with the delivery trucks, those sort of things electrify their fleets. But why is it so important also for electric companies to be thinking and learning from their own fleet electrification experience? Yes, I think utilities can learn a lot um, by going through the process themselves. Of course they can. So it's good for them to understand what the challenges are. I believe one of the most complex parts of this process is trying to find an optimal way to charge and run the vehicles so they're all able to the vehicles are able to deliver their duty cycle without disruption but also are able to charge in a an economically optimal manner and understanding just how difficult that is 
uh, not just the pra the practicality of it, but also the the data analysis that's required. Um, if a, if utilities can go through that process and really understand all of those complexities through electrifying their own fleets, then they would get a much better understanding of what it's like to be in a big fleet's uh, in a big fleet's shoes. Uh, and it is really, really challenging. And for electric companies, we understand the importance of leading by example. But when you're thinking about their customers that are making some pretty substantial investments in their fleets, what's driving that? Is it maybe part of their environmental climate commitments that they've made? Or is there cost-saving opportunities? Or is it a lot of forces that are really starting to push companies in these directions? Well, the reason that a lot of fleets are transitioning is because of policy. A lot of it is policy-driven. It is increasingly driven by statute. I think um, the big east and west coast cities, obviously, the fleets are, the bus fleets, for example, are converting to electric um, there along predetermined schedules, and that's driven by, by policy. Um, and in fact, it's driven by law in some cases, so it's a requirement. Um, sometimes, though, it's, it's also an, an economic argument. I think fleet owners are increasingly seeing that it does make total cost of ownership sense to convert to electric. And the current environment, of course, is just making that more obvious with extremely high gas prices. So the economic argument has never been better or never stronger than now. Well, I think we probably could continue this conversation all afternoon, but you've already been very generous with your time. And I thank both you and Jim for being here at EI 2022 and to really helping EI's member companies try to figure out the pathway forward. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thanks, Brian. And just to reiterate what Jim said, it's fantastic to be here and to see everybody. And uh, many thanks to EEI. ESG, or environmental, social, and governance issues, increasingly are important to customers, employees, investors, and regulators. A panel at EEI 2022 explored what is on the horizon for ESG issues and what it means for the electric power industry. Here is Dan Hahn, Guidehouse's partner for energy, sustainability, and infrastructure, who participated on the panel and gave us further insights on ESG. Our next guest is Dan Hahn, partner for energy, sustainability, and infrastructure at Guidehouse. We caught him after the panel, The Future of ESG Reporting. So, Dan, thank you for being here at EI 2022 with us, as well as for your sponsorship and, and really helping to lead the ESG conversation in the industry. Well, Brian, thank you for having me. Really appreciate that. For those who aren't as familiar with environmental, social, and governance issues or ESG issues, can you explain what they are and why investors seem to be focusing on them more and more and more? Absolutely. Environmental, social, and governance, ESG, is a branding that has you know, a recent phenomenon. And when it comes to basically non-financial non information disclosure for the markets, um, if you look at this industry specifically, many of the foundational elements of ESG have been part of what the member companies have been reporting already, uh, specifically around the E. Um, you know, this, this energy sector has been very, very focused on driving climate resiliency, climate change, becoming cleaner. And that has really, really been something that um, the member companies should be very proud of when you compare them to other sectors. Um, ESG is very important in regards to how companies are evaluated and measured um, as part of are they good stewards and uh, corporate citizens to the the, the uh, local local uh, local economy and the local jurisdictions that these member companies serve? 
if you really think about many of the utilities, you know, they're they're about economic development. They're about ensuring prosperous um, um, societies and communities uh, within their service territory, and that's really important. And that's where ESG has somewhat what I'll call formalized a process to now where it's a, where it's actually table stakes in regards to how companies are looked at, evaluated, and measured. Um, from an investor's perspective, as well as the stakeholders that are out there, which is communities, regulators, and you know even their own employees at these organizations. So you touched on some of the climate threats and how companies are managing these issues. Investors are rightfully factoring that into some of their decisions. What are factors outside of maybe traditional ESG issues? How might it have been evolving in, in recent years for governance and for the other pieces of it? Um, the evolution of the S and the G is, is well I'll fo- focus on because I think from the E standpoint, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, what does social mean? What does governance mean? Um, a, a big part of social has a lot to do with, and, and, and it's just been amplified by recent events over the past couple of years. You know, if you take a look at what's happened with the George Floyd incident and in regards to Black Lives Matters. I mean, these are all societal impacts that companies have to have some sort of point of view about. And as we look at societal improvements and society and what they're doing and the expectations from these organizations on their impact overall, this is a way that this is actually becoming measured. The other thing to think about in regards to social is around the human side of things. And when I think about that is I think about energy equity. Um, We're talking about having, you know, if you think about the, the industry, right, we care about safety. We care about reliability. We care about affordability. But we also have to care about resiliency and access. And what does access mean? When you talk about deploying EV charging station, Anybody with a single family home, pretty easy. But when you talk about folks who live in urban areas, lower income, middle income uh, areas where you have multifamily units, those are going to be really an area where they have to have access. And it is the responsibility of organizations like the member companies to help provide access so they can actually provide energy equity to multiple parties, not just those that can afford it. Do you think... And in your role with Guidehouse, how are you working with electric companies to really help drive their ESG decision-making and and reporting and really just strategy forward? We're working with our clients on several areas. Specifically, I'll I'll be very specific to ESG and then Mm -hmm. the broader sense of how we're uh, uh, helping our clients. Um, We look at ESG in regards to where do they stand in regards to their ratings how can they improve their ESG um, structure, their governance, the processes that they have? Uh, I mentioned in the panel that we worked with uh, Nextera on doing an ESG assessment for them. And really, they took that information and said, hey, you know, how do we Im- improve um, our own internal processes, our governance around this area? And that is really an initial step. Um, when you look at ESG, it's really the output of information. So then that means there's got to be a process that actually allows you to get to that information to, to provide that output. And this really where Guidehouse, you know, I'll mention five specific things we do with our clients. One is around customer programs. Two is around mobility. Three is around sustainability. Four is around infrastructure and resiliency. And five is around risk compliance security. Those are the five major things we do, primary th- things we do with our clients that all ultimately impact how information is then reported uh, from an ESG standpoint. And I'll 
plug for a moment now. I know for a few years now, EI has had an initiative to develop an ESG reporting template because member companies were doing more and more in this space and trying to find, because you said it seems like companies and investors probably are benchmarking reporting and performance. There really was a concerted effort to have a little bit more commonality and consistency between and among different companies reporting. So I guess that's a long way of me asking how important is it to listen to your stakeholders when you're developing your reporting to make sure that you're actually meeting their needs? It's absolutely important. And uh, you hit it right on the head in regards to how do we create a common definition that can be measured across so that you're measuring it in the right and accurate way. Um, kudos to EI for having this template that has evolved over the past, I think it's now six, seven years old, and each year it gets better. Now, EEI and the member companies took a step forward by implementing something like this early in the days before it ever became to where it is today. And you know, with the recent SEC ruling uh, proposal, we'll see. I mean, it, I think it's very clear that um, transparency is gonna be very important. Uh, what methods and processes are used to actually come up with what information is actually delivered to the SEC will be interesting. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, I, I use the term squishy. It's a bit squishy right now, on, you know, waiting to see what's going to happen with regards to what information is going to be required. And so with, uh, with, with that in mind, um, you know, there are, there are six steps that every organization can take in regards to getting ready for what's coming. Uh, first is literacy. It is very important that the leaders within these organizations become literate around what climate risk decisions will they be making. Senior leadership, executive management teams have to be literate around the impacts of whatever decision they make and what it has to climate risk disclosure. The second is around governance and integration. Do we have the right governance structures integrated into our risk management processes today to really allow for our organization? Because you have risk management processes today, it's really important to start including climate risk disclosure, climate risks into that as well. Third is data. How do we actually get the data? Scope one and scope two, pretty straightforward. Scope three, you got 15 different um, areas to look at, which ones are going to be material for you and your up and downstream from you, and then how do you actually obtain that data? Is that the right data? Especially when scope one is so clear and so impactful. Exactly. And then you got the fourth thing, which then is, do you have the systems and processes and tools in place to help you do that? You got to create an enterprise-wide structure for it. The fifth thing is actually really interesting is around what I'll call opportunities and upside. With this need to actually disclose this information, member companies, specific, member companies customers, specifically the CNI customers, are gonna need help in regards to how they report their scope three, how they report their scope two. And that's an opportunity for this industry to really look at that and say, hey, you know, this is a new products and services we could provide for our customers. I think that is a very, very important part of this. And lastly, um, preparedness. How do we prepare our organization? Do you have a climate team? Do you have a team that's very focused on climate risk disclosure? Those things, getting a, getting a team mobilized, coming up with an action plan, coming up with a strategy and approach, because I go back to the word squishiness, it's a bit squishy right now. 
but what can we do to get ready for whatever's going to come down the road? Those are the six things that we recommend to our clients. Well, thank you so much for being a panelist here at EI 2022 and making a little bit more time to sit down with us this afternoon. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And uh, thank you, Brian. really appreciate it. While clean energy and transportation electrification were major topics of discussion throughout EEI 2022, there were interesting conversations about a range of other issues that also are major priorities for America's electric companies, including cybersecurity. Jen Easterly, Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, joined Duke Energy Chair, President, and CEO Lynn Good to talk about the three Ps of infrastructure security people, preparedness, and partnerships. You have an audience here of people who are working hard to do all that we know to do, and the partnership has been formed over a long period of time, but it needs to evolve, it needs to keep changing. So what advice would you have yeah. for our EEI members on where we can take this partnership? Yeah, so, so two things, just pivot, pivoting off of you know the strange feeling that we are on the front lines uh, without a uniform, yes. you know, without weapons necessarily, but we really are, and when you say critical infrastructure, sometimes people don't understand sort of this technical esoteric term, critical infrastructure. At the end of the day, critical infrastructure are the networks and the systems and the data that Americans rely on every hour of every day mm -hmm. to get gas at the pump, to get their power, their water, their food at the grocery store, their money from their ATM. So we truly are all in it together. The government can't do it alone, industry can't do it alone. So it really has to be this sort of collective cyber defense all in the foxhole together on the front line. So I think your, your comments are just spot on. You, you know, what I've been trying to do, just going back to the earlier point, finding a better way to do it, is really transform what I think has become a hackneyed term of public-private partnership into true operational collaboration and turn information sharing into what I call information enabling. We need to be able to provide information that network defenders and businesses can use to be able to strengthen the resilience and security of their networks, whether that means taking classified information and declassifying it and make it available and actionable, or just providing information a lot quicker, or just being responsive to when industry provides us information. And so we've been doing this in, in a couple ways. Um, one that's sort of a signature thing that we've built over the last year emerged from what was called the uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission uh, that had great commissioners like Tom Fanning. Uh, and an idea came out of it that what we need to do is build a platform to bring together uh, the government and the private sector to be able to, in real time, share information so that we can see the dots together, connect the dots, and then drive down risk to the nation at scale. And so, the idea was called a Joint Cyber Planning Office. I didn't like the, uh, the sound of JICPO, because I think <laughs> it sounded like, I don't know, a disease or something. So I'm a big 80s rock music, and I found out that Bill Furman and I have a love for the same uh, rock band, ACDC. So I called it, uh, we tried to call it the Advanced Cyber Defense Collaborative. The lawyers would not let us do that. So we ended up calling it the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, JCDC. Essentially what it does is it brings together the power of the federal cyber ecosystem, CISA, NSA, Cybercom, Justice, uh, Cyber Command, uh, uh, the FBI of course, uh, the D Director of National Intelligence, the Secret Service on one platform, and then we bring our sector risk management agency, so energy, treasury, health and human services, transportation, with the private sector 
all in one space, sharing information so that we can understand together that threat environment so we can drive down risk to the nation at scale. And we, we worked on this very collaboratively, uh, as you know, with many of the, uh, the energy companies, the electricity and the pipeline sector as part of our Shields Up campaign in advance of Russia's uh, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And since that time, we have been working together to share information uh, and insights and analysis on the threat environment so that we can get ahead, something we're not, you know, as a, as, as a country, we have not been good at. We're great at responding and reacting. We're not great at proactively planning against threats and then actually implementing operations that helps us get ahead of those threats. And so the JCDC is really the signature uh, capability that we've built. Uh, and we're also doing other things to tie ourselves closer to the private sector, very mindful that we have to go into this with the proposition of humility, transparency. We're gonna make mistakes, but this is about building trust, which is, as you know, Lynn, very hard to build and very easy to lose. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the journey we've been on. Uh, I am really pleased with uh, how, the success that we've had to date, but you know, we've got a long way to go. Well, I, I know there's a lot of excitement in our sector about what JCDC can do because um, you know, this idea of getting ahead of it, the idea of knowing what you know and how it might relate to our environment. And I also suspect we are seeing things that we could bring to your attention. 100%. The one thing we know is there will be threats. There will be disruption. There is really in this world we live in no preventing bad things from happening. So what do we have to do? We have to focus on the R word, on resilience, and we have to build our networks and our systems and our data and frankly our people to be resilient. Expect a bad thing to happen, be able to respond quickly so you can recover rapidly and drive down risk to your business. But very importantly, because businesses are part of critical infrastructure, drive down risk to the nation at scale. And that, that's the thing that I think this community gets that's so terrific is, you know, at the end of the day, critical infrastructure and, and threats against businesses is just not about your business or your customers or your shareholders. It's really about national security. Mm -hmm. And so that is so important for us all to recognize that at the end of the day, the sharing of information, if something bad happens in your company, sharing that with us, and we have the authorities to protect that information and liability, is good because we can actually make sure we're protecting the wider sector. And so incredibly important for us to work on all sorts of threats, but also to really, again, take the view that we are in this together and we will not be successful unless we are looking at this as a collective, collaborative endeavor. Diving deeper into managing cybersecurity risk, Kim Zetter, journalist and author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon, joined us after moderating a panel with Berkshire Hathaway Energy President and CEO Bill Furman and Souther Company Chairman, President and CEO Tom Fenning. Our next guest here at EEI 2022 is journalist and author Kim Zetter, who moderated a panel discussion this afternoon on evolving threats, what doesn't keep you awake at night? And she was joined by Berkshire Hathaway Energy President and CEO Bill Furman, as well as Tom Fanning, the Chairman, President and CEO of Southern Company. So thank you so much for making a little bit more time for us today. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So what were your biggest takeaways from your conversations today with Bill and Tom? And obviously, it's an issue, cybersecurity generally, that you've covered very closely, but the way in which they probably were uh, walking through a little bit of our industry-government partnership and the role that it plays, what were your real takeaways from the conversation? Um, Well, one of the things that Bill had mentioned was how it's really ramped up in the last 24 months. And I thought that was interesting because there's been, you know, efforts, um, you know, moving in this direction for a decade. But the idea that really only in the last 24 months we are seeing a lot of the things that have been talked about a decade ago actually getting implemented. Um, So I thought that was interesting. And also just the timing, like what has happened in the last two years to push this forward. I guess, you know, Colonial Pipeline is one of them, obviously Solar Winds. Um, so there, you know, we're, we have been dealing with a lot of, and the nation state stuff actually, you know, attacking, uh, well, that was earlier, 2015, 2016, but the attack of Ukraine's power grid. So it's interesting to see that the government or the industry really has, um, only, you know, put the pedal to the metal, I guess, in the last 24 months. I was surprised by that. Sure. And you mentioned nation states, but it seems as though there's also been a little bit of an evolution for the organized crime groups as well, whether it's kind of cyber threats as a service where you've almost seen some incidences where the the um, the actors actually had to put out statements clarifying that wasn't their intent. It just seems to be very unusual compared to where things were maybe three, four years ago. Yes. I mean, obviously, because the, I mean, ransomware is not new. It's been around for um, more than a decade, maybe two decades. Um, but it's become enabled by cryptocurrency. And um, also the motivation is there because we've we've solved some of the problems around um, credit card theft, uh, bank card theft. And so they've had to pivot here. But I think what's interesting is what you touched on with the Conti group, of course, that um, and the groups that are hitting critical infrastructure, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Um, if we believe them, they didn't target Colonial Pipeline and just found themselves on that network. Um, but that that reaction was interesting. Um, the way that they scrambled very very quickly to say, as you point out, hey, we didn't mean that because the force of government was coming down on them. But we also have to look at what happened uh, less than a year later when there's the invasion of Ukraine, and suddenly now Conti Group is saying we we side with the Kremlin. Um, so there's that. There's yes that the domination of uh, criminal hackers. Um, has been there for a long time, but we're now seeing that marrying with the nation-state motives and interests. Do you observe that the things that are top of mind for the electric power industry CEOs, I mean, the theme was what keeps you up at night, do you think other critical sectors here in the U.S. that they share some of those concerns, or does business models and kind of business operations make it a little different for each sector? I mean, I think every sector probably has its own different scenario of what keeps them up at night. But I mean, if you're not paying attention to this, then you're just not doing your job anymore. And it's like, you know, I think um, Tom had said, you know, get out. If you're really not paying attention to all of this and really not doing what you should be doing. Um, There's no excuse at this point because the threats are there. They're not, um, you know, theoretical anymore. Um, But I think that every industry, critical infrastructure, um, and we've got a lot of them here in the U.S., what we designate as critical infrastructure, um, have their own scenarios of what would keep them up. And here we're focusing a lot throughout our meeting, obviously, protecting critical infrastructure as a theme, but also innovation and the role that it plays in driving 
the clean energy transition forward. But I mean, one could easily argue we've seen a lot of innovation for better or for worse in the cyber sector as well and on the security side. I think, you know, one of the things that we touched on in the panel was automation. I mean, that's where the innovation, a lot of the innovation is going in in terms of energy sector. Um, and that is sort of anathema to security because when you take those systems out or if they, they fail or get taken out intentionally, then what are you left with? Um, and so I think that there, are, you know, there has to be movement forward, but also with an awareness of the dangers that you're getting into when you go too far forward. Um, you still have to retain some of those old school abilities in order to survive something like that. Even just in the past few years, if we're thinking back maybe to nation state actors, how has cyber warfare really changed since you published your book? Um, Countdown to Zero Day, you walked your readers through the Stuxnet worm and how it silently made its way to the Iranian centrifuges. So you were able to walk your readers through what that process might look like. And it definitely seemed like a long game sort of scenario. So as you think of just where, like, what was proof of concept? At that time, how have things changed today? Yeah, I mean, a decade ago, I mean, that was state of the art at the time. We can only imagine where it is at this point. We, you know, after Stuxnet was discovered, we thought that there would be a lot of copycat attacks against critical infrastructure. That's what everyone was worried about because no one was prepared at that point, certainly not at the level of they are today. Um, and then we really didn't see anything until 2015, 2016. Um, so five or six years after Stuxnet was discovered, then we saw the attack on the Ukraine power grid. Um, so we, that was the first sort of incident. And then we saw what was happening at the Saudi uh, petrochemical plants um, with Triton. So we haven't actually seen a lot of attacks. Um, I think that there's partly because the deterrence is good. Um, you know, the concept of mutual destruction works when you're talking about nation states. But one of the things that um, that uh, Tom brought up in the panel was what if ISIS, you know, um, buys the skills of mercenaries? Um, you know, if we're talking about digital warfare, we tend to be talking about nation on nation. And then it's kind of controlled, right? Because you have that deterrence, you have the um, interest in staying within the, the bounds of international law. But when you start to get into terrorism groups, all of that goes out. They don't care if they cause, you know, um, reckless destruction. Um, they don't really care how skilled they are. Um, they don't care about deterrence. And so that warfare then, when you're talking about asymmetric warfare with groups that um, don't have the same um, restrictions or the same limitations or the same you know, self-restrictions, um, um, I think that that's potentially where we're going to go in that kind of warfare. But we still haven't really seen any kind of full outplay with um, digital warfare. We should have seen that, in the, or we expected to see it at least in Ukraine, and we haven't. Earlier this morning, one of our opening keynotes, we had Lingood, the chairman, president, and CEO of Duke Energy, speaking with Jen Easterly, the director of CISA. And they really were just explaining how important it is to have industry and government working together because there's a lot of things that everyone's looking at, but really when you're able to pull in more stakeholders, you just get a much broader view and you can identify patterns. And I'm sure I'm oversimplifying it, but really it just seems like the risk of protecting critical infrastructure, especially for cybersecurity, really is a, a 
team sport, all hands on deck scenario. Yeah, I don't think you're oversimplifying it because sometimes it comes down to the simple things of spotting something on your network um, and talking with someone else and they're saying, oh, yeah, we saw that as well. And not really thinking that it's bigger than it is until you start to see that there's multiple uh, people, multiple victims, multiple companies, agencies um, that have been uh, targeted in the same way. So, yeah, you really do need that wider visibility in order to um, ultimately uh, in many cases, see the narrative of something that's happening, that it may not just be you, but a, a, a larger growing threat. And are you surprised at all to see CEOs here at the meeting having such opening open discussions really about some of the cyber threats? I think historically it was one of those do like the less you say about it, the better. But it seems like uh, throughout our, our meeting here so far at EI 2022, CEOs are, are up there and they're actually talking about the risk that we see and, and ways in which we can work together. Did you find that surprising or maybe refreshing? No. I mean, so you're talking about like security through obscurity mm -hmm. where everyone thinks if you don't talk about the threats and no one's going to know about the threats or yep. no one's going to know about the vulnerabilities. Um, that's old school, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's I would say that it's about time that CEOs are talking in this way um, and that it's not just the CISOs. Right. Mm -hmm. So the CISOs, um, they knew what the security threats were. They were trying to get the attention of CEOs for a long time. They were trying to get budgets um, and really having a lot of difficulty in that until we actually did see because everyone was thinking, well, we don't see any Thing, right? Mm -hmm. These are all theoretical. And then we saw the Ukraine power grid hack, um, and we saw the Triton attack against the petrochemical company. And now we see, you know, Ukraine going after certain systems, or sorry, Russia going after certain systems mm -hmm. in Ukraine. So I think that it's long overdue, um, but it's great to see CEOs who are informed. Um, it's great to see someone like Tom, who's a CIO, former CIO, who has that technical knowledge um, about sharing or securing information. Um, so yeah, it's long overdue. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us here in Florida and for helping lead the discussion about how electric companies really are identifying and managing and mitigating the risks that we face. Thank you for the conversation. Be on the lookout for our next episode to hear even more highlights. And as a reminder, EEI 2023 will be June 11th to 13th in Austin, Texas. So be sure to mark your calendars. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.